This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability... The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Because a lot of these biases are learned and shaped through our experiences, the way we have been brought up, the, the cultural, social context, the media we've been exposed to, the messages we get on social media, the things that our tribe and our community tells us, our parent tells us, our friends tells us, the things we talk about, we read in newspapers, a lot of these biases are shaped by those things. So we are lear- learning them. We learn them through our lifetime. And once we learn, because we learn them, we can unlearn them as well. So I do believe that once we become aware of them and we reflect on them and we acknowledge them, then we can start unlearning them as well and we can change our attitudes accordingly. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. No matter how open-minded we consider ourselves to be, all of us hold biases towards other people. Dr. Pragya Agarwal is a behavioural scientist and a data scientist, ex-academic and a freelance writer and journalist who runs a think tank called The 50% Project, which is for gender equality. In this week's podcast, she explains to our editorial assistant, Amy Barrett, where these biases come from and why it's important for us to recognise and unlearn them to help make the world a better, fairer place. So my name is Dr. Pragya Agarwal and I am a uh, behavioral scientist and data scientist, um, ex-academic, uh, and I am a freelance writer and journalist now, science journalist, and I also run a research think tank called the 50% Project, which is for gender equality. And let's talk about your upcoming book, Sway. Um, how did that book come about? 
Um, it, I think it's been coming, happening for a long time. So the book is um, kind of emerged out of my own academic research, which uh, which was all about, I used to work, um, my work was based in data bias and how technology has bias in it and how when we try and integrate different people's perceptions in it, we cannot have a very um, kind of deterministic view of it and and all, all those kind of things, how do we uh, model mental maps and people's notions of place. And so I was really interested in how bias and uncertainty gets built into data and technology. But then also it's also based in my personal experience as a woman growing up in India and also here in a very largely predominantly white male environments of technology and STEM as an academic, being the first woman lecturer in a, in a leading engineering department in one of the top five UK universities, uh, being a single parent um, and, and just being a woman of color and how that kind of shaped my sense of belonging and the kind of biases and prejudices that both implicit and explicit that I've faced through my life. So I think it was a culmination of all those things, personal and professional, that came about. And, you know, and you both. mentioned both the implicit and explicit biases. Can you just explain both of those terms for me? What In, in a lab context, in, in the STEM world, what do those two mean? Um, so, yes. So explicit is something that's very, so you can, you can say this is, uh, um, it's very clear that, for instance, in a very simplistic way, um, if I purposefully somebody discriminates between two people based on their uh, race or skin color or or the university they went to, um, and it's very very clear that this this discrimination or is happening or this prejudice is, exists, um, that is an explicit bias. So, for instance, sometimes for instance in data, these explicit biases are also modeled in for the. <laughs> for the purpose of the model itself. But for in real world, uh, for instance, a hate crime is an explicit prejudice right. or discrimination. But implicit ones are which are very di more difficult to tell that these are biases because these affect our decisions and these affect our actions, but they are not very clear that these decisions and actions have been affected by our, our biases and our prejudices. Um, for instance, making fun of somebody or or unconsciously or subconsciously discriminating or preferring one person over the other or one thing over the other because of perhaps, for instance, if a person looks at a CV and says, oh, I think this person is over more qualified than the other just because perhaps they went to a, diff a preferred university or mm -hmm. the university that they went to. So all of us carry a conformity bias. We are more attracted to people who are more like us. And those kind of biases are more implicit because they are very not easy to explicitly uh, mark out as biases and prejudices. And where do these kind of biases come from? Like, why does our brain create biases? Um, so, um, evolutionarily, mm -hmm. we were we were evolutionary um, basis of that. We were designed to differentiate between make these quick decisions between people who belong to our group, our tribe, and those who didn't. And that was kind of a survival strategy because in, in resources were limited and people had to say, this person 
is a threat to me or to my to the limited resources and so this is person is an out group and there were different markers to these so our brain is kind of creates these on a very superficial when the information is processed um when before it goes to the rational and logical part of the brain we make these very quick decisions about what information is important to us what information should we take into account um whether this person belongs to our group and or an outside group uh whether this person or an object is a threat or should we be should we fear this person and these kind of in group out group demarcations are made very very quickly because we have to process so much information so much information around us that there's not time to take every bit of information on a very rational logical level and so a lot of this information is processed on a very on on basis of of pre our previous experiences and we make these very quick matches between our previous experiences and say in the past this kind of person or this kind of product or this kind of situation was a threat to us so that is what it would be and that's how these immediate stereotypes are formed that we very quickly make these kind of demarcations and distinctions and labels assign these labels and so that's a way of in processing this information really quickly before we can take it to a very rational level in our brain so there can be benefits to 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 being able to do this for our brains working in this way absolutely so i give an example in sway about a very simple example like if i go and choose a a, a brand of cereal in the supermarket if i go shopping I, if i made every decision um in a kind of took every bit of information around me and weighed it up and tried to make an independent decision based on logic and clear analysis then there's not enough time i would be stuck at with every decision in the world so there are advantages to it because at, at times we cannot process every information every bit of information so carefully um and so it helps us make quick decisions in life and there are situations and where we have to make really quick decisions but there are obviously as i discuss more in detail there are obviously negative sides to it in in certain situations and in decisions where these these decisions actually make an impact they have life and death um impact or they they are important they're more important than just choosing a brand of cereal so can you know it's, it's easy to see how an explicit bias could have a life or death impact but can unconscious biases go go that far yes absolutely and for instance um racial and sex racial discrimination has has a huge impact so for instance if a jury is um weighing up the evidence against a person um no person even though how however much we say we are neutral we can never be completely neutral we all carry certain biases so if they if a person is has certain biases against a particular uh person who's being um who's on trial mm-hmm. um based on their accent or the way they look or whether they have more tattoos or whether they have a particular accent or whether they belong to a certain nationality or whether they are a particular gender um all those things if if uh, if the members of the jury have these implicit kind of preferences and biases against or these stereotypes saying that a person who looks like this or speaks like this or belongs to a particular group would be like this and they if they make these associations then 
they might weigh up the evidence in a different way because that would that might mean that they would um, give more weightage to a particular piece of evidence than the other. And so th- that those implicit kind of are unconscious um, preferences and biases and stereotypes that we carry can have a life and death impact as well. And how can we go about identifying our own unconscious, unconscious biases? So I think I discuss it more in Sway. So I think the important thing to be aware of and to acknowledge is that we all carry biases. And I think it's it's difficult for us to say that because we all want to be egalitarian. We all want to be mm-hmm. fair-minded and we all want to be very equitable. But that's not the case. So as long as we say we we'll all carry these biases and preferences and some of these biases and preferences can have really huge impacts and some might be okay for us to live with. And then that's the first step to get to do that. And then if we are more careful in situations where it is important to make these fair decisions. For instance, if I am on a hiring committee, it is more important for me to be aware of my biases, these implicit biases, in the way that I assess different people's CVs or in in the way I sit on an interview panel and I assess different candidates. In those situations, I think it's really important for me to be, for a person who is making these decisions, to be conscious of these, to reflect on their own biases and to actually not make any hasty, rushed decisions and to be conscious of any kind of hasty, rushed kind of stereotypes or associations or decisions that this person is making. So in those situations, I think it's important to take your time to step back and to reflect on your decisions and see whether any kind of unconscious biases are affecting those decisions. So is it the case that once you've started being aware of your own unconscious biases, that you can kind of train yourself out of them and eventually remove them completely? Or is it something that once you've kind of learned, you're, you're always going to be struggling and coming up against? No, I think I, I think that this, this whole debate about whether unconscious biases are something we are born with or whether mm-hmm. we can unlearn them. And I firmly believe that personally, that because a lot of these biases are learned and shaped through our experiences, the way they we have been brought up, the, the cultural, social context, the media we've been exposed to, the messages we get on social media, the things that our tribe and our community tells us, our parent tells us, our friends tells us, the things we talk about, we read in newspapers. A lot of these biases are shaped by those things. So we are le- learning them. We learn them through our lifetime. And once we learn, because we learn them, we can unlearn them as well. So I do believe that once we become aware of them, and we reflect on them, and we acknowledge them, then we can start unlearning them as well, and we can change our attitudes um, accordingly. So it's sort of things in in your childhood that, that will then uh, appear later in life as, as unconscious biases? Well, yes. I mean, if for instance, this is why I think I, I talk about in Sway about developmental psychology and how children... As they're growing up, they start forming this sense of in-group and out-group associations. And that's a very natural response for children because they're making this sense of their own identity in the world, their own place in the world. And it's largely shaped by who they see around us, who they see as foes, who they see as friends, who they see find comfort with. And so there's no real prejudice involved in it at that stage as they're growing up. But those prejudices are bolstered and reinforced by the messages they might get from their parents and 
they might get from the educators or the the books that they read and the TV that they watch. So if a particular child thinks that a person who's a specific skin color is some somebody to be feared with or they are not our friends or is is my my, the, my parents who I really trust do not uh, believe do not like a certain kind of person then these these biases get reinforced into prejudices and once they get once a child learns them then that can take the form of discrimination against people around them based on these prejudices and biases as well so a child has these biases um, as a natural form of growing up are forming these in-group, out-group associations, but they only turn into prejudices and discrimination based on the things they learn from the society and culture, society around them, the environment. So do you see ever a future without these biases? Um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I, think, I think it's really important and it's really crucial that we're talking about it. And, and it's, as I say, the more we talk about it, the more we become aware of things like microaggressions, for instance, and things that were acknowledged and just ingrained as part of our culture and just accepted as okay, even though it hurt and upset the person who was being marginalized or victimized or targeted. And we just thought, oh, that's how things are. But it's good that we're talking about them. And it's good that we are trying to understand it from the perspective of the person who's the who's the marginalized community rather than the person who is inflicting these these kind of um, microaggressions. Mm. So it it's I think change will happen and change is happening slowly, very slowly, because there is always resistance to change. There's always resistance to any kind of uh, change in status quo because people who have the privilege or people who have a certain status will always resist the change because that threatens their status and that means that they are worried about what their position and place in society will be once their status changes. So I talk about privilege and how that can be a threatening word to people. Mm. But we cannot do away with all our biases because some biases are not, biases not always negative. Biases can have negative impacts. But as I talk about, some biases are important to make really quick decisions in life and we cannot just go do away with all our cognitive biases, all our implicit biases. But we can do away with stereotypes and we can do away with prejudices and discrimination that is linked to some of the biases that we carry. Mm. So, yeah, I think we change will come slowly. Do you think that sometimes it goes too far in one direction and that we go down the, the wrong route, um, the, the conversation can get, you know, nasty. I mean, cancel culture is, is a huge thing now on Twitter, um, but that just seems to kind of further divide people and further reinforce biases. Is is there a right way we can go about it? Well, yes, I think there are. You're right that sometimes people are not engaging in conversation and discussion in a healthy way manner. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, but I, I, I also think that, yes, a, a lot of, things, these divides are being reinforced by the way our politics is working now because our part, it's very partisan and it's, 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 it's built on these divides and it benefits from these divides. 
So it's an interest of a lot of our politicians and our, the, the kind of climate we live in that these divides exist and these divides are strengthened. So it it these divides are, and, and that's, that, that's not a very good way to go, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that's the negative side of these discussions happening. But as I said, there's always going to be push and resistance against any kind of change happening from the communities that have had had experienced certain privileges or from the communities that have held power because the person who's held the power will always resist the the kind of uprising from the people who have been oppressed historically, for instance. So if the marginalized communities start talking about and pushing back against these prejudices, and then they, they there is going to be further divides in, initially. And in, but I think the important thing is to have is to, for people to be more open-minded. And I think, um, yes, social media is, cre- are, is creating these echo chambers and these filter bubbles that I talk about in Sway as well, about it's, it's strengthening these this kind of sense of belonging in a particular community, that I belong in a particular tribe, so I cannot engage with anybody who does not belong in that. So, so again, we're falling back on very kind of primal in-group, out-group tendencies through these through these medium. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think having more scientific and evidence around these discussions, having more open-minded, non-judgmental platforms for these discussions is very important. And in terms of the scientific research, how, how do you go about studying people's biases, whether implicit or explicit? And that's really a tricky one, obviously, because, I mean, it's very difficult to measure and quantify these things. And I know there I talk about in my book about some of the methods that people have used. And so this is why it was really important for me to look at it from a perspective of a very broad interdisciplinary lens, because I I could not just focus on one particular discipline or one particular methodology and one particular tool or technique that has been used to study this. To try and bring together these different studies, these disparate studies, even some of the studies where measuring bias or quantifying bias or assessing bias wasn't the main goal of the study but in the way the results can be interpreted in that Mm. and they can tell us something about a particular group or the particular bias that people might carry and so I've tried to bring together all these different things in the book for this for this reason Um, and I also kind of critique some of the tools and methods which have been considered like the like the absolute um, goal or absolute um, one way that we can measure bias and so things like IAT for instance is a useful tool but some people think that this is giving us a very measurable value for what my implicit bias is they do not understand how the tool works and we do not take that into account when people use that so even now when I go and do these diversity talks and workshops people say can we do the Harvard test beforehand so that I have a number for how what my implicit bias is. And that is absolutely not what the test is telling us. So I think there are lots of myths and misunderstandings around what unconscious and un- implicit bias is, how it can be me- measured, how we can tell what kind of biases we carry. And so I propose in, the, in my book about the kind of strategies that I take and the kind of methods that I use. And I and and those cannot be just one taking one computer-based test. Mm. So there are tests out there that that claim to 
help you identify your biases, but that's not something that you'd recommend just any or sort of anyone in the general public should do. No, that's what I'm saying is that this, there is this test, yes, and it was proposed by these Harvard psychologists who first came up with the whole idea of measuring implicit bias. And for a long time, IAT has been one that has been used by everybody because we don't have any other test. Right. And there can be different, people have designed different kinds of IAT. Implicit It's called an implicit association test. So it works on the basis of association, tell us associating different things. And in that way, it tells us what what our implicit biases are. If, we, if, if I associate certain thing with right. certain thing, if I say apple green all the time, then obviously I believe firmly that apples are always green and they can never be red, you know, those kind of uh, very yeah. simplistically speaking. And it gives a value. But, and I see that that's being used a lot by organizations and they call it diversity training and they mm-hmm. call it implicit bias training. But that's not just, that's not training. That's not training you to understand anything about what implicit bias is and how to tackle implicit bias because that number doesn't really give you the absolute marker for what kind of biases we carry so i think what i'm saying is that it has to be a really deeper understanding for how we tackle the our unconscious biases and how we unlearn them and you've already mentioned sort of racism and sexism but those are perhaps the most politicized of, of uh, sort of unconscious biases yeah. but what other areas have you looked at, um, what, maybe surprising areas that, that people can hold biases in that they might not realise? Yeah, I look at a really big range of biases because some of the biases we don't even think about, for instance, height. Let's take one example. And we people don't think about how power uh, or traditionally has been associated with people who are a certain height, how what kind of stereotypes are associated with people with a certain height and so that's and how during hiring or during interviews there are certain associations made with people who are taller to be better leaders things like that and they and media sometimes or films can reinforce these stereotypes as well so that's one of the things is cases that i discuss i also discuss age and ageism and although we are having a more deeper broader understanding and discussion and discourse around ageism now and how age-based discrimination is happening, but they, it's but we still not looking at the nuances and, and kind of more subtleties of ageism, and how that impacts in healthcare diagnosis, um, in in obviously workplaces, but also in our society how that really impacts people's lives. Um, I look at accents, which is one which more talked about, I suppose, but I looked at more deeply about how how these biases a shape and form and looks. And I, I talk about, for instance, colorism, which is something that is in, still exists. Uh, and that's really interesting because it's kind of ingrained colonialism or ingrained kind of this racism, um, reverse racism, where people of your own um, in, in certain communities in China, Indian Asian countries still consider people who are more white passing, who have a bright, fairer skin to be better looking. And I discussed that as well. Um, so, yeah, some of the other names, for instance, name bias. And that's a really interesting one because we don't even think about that. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 it's it's something that happens a lot. There's been some studies. I've done my own informal studies and questionnaires and surveys around it. I have personal experiences of it. And there is psychological basis to how we 
associate certain things to certain names. And, and so there's a broad spectrum of biases that affect our lives besides racism and sexism, which are obviously quite prominent ones and ones that get most platform. Mm -hmm. And is the act of of holding a bias, is that a strictly human thing? Are there any other animals that do it? And this is interesting because I, I was trying to think about it. Obviously, we haven't really done studies in terms of biases per se in animals or animal behavioral studies. But obviously, animals learn through their experiences to have certain preferences as well. No, so I think we could say that yes, they form these biases or preferences mm. and certain associations when they. But that could be that because they associate certain like um, feelings or emotions to a certain person, or fear, or threat, or love, or um, food, or comfort to certain things, and so those kind of signals become their cues for those kind of behaviors or emotions as well. So yes, I I don't know if we can call them biases, but yes, preferences for sure, and that they learn and that shapes their decisions and actions as well. Mm. But I'm and not an animal behaviorist, so that's something that's <laughs> an interesting question to think about. But the way you sort of described um, biases is at the beginning is that it sounded very similar to kind of machine learning and, and the way that computers use um you know, previous, not experiences as such, but but what they've got correct previously to then make quicker, faster assumptions. Um, so can a computer be biased? Yes, and I, you're right. That's what happens in technology. And that's something where initially my interest was aroused about biases because I did a lot of work in that area. And yes, I have a huge section in my book which is dedicated to AI and tech and machine learning and about um, how biases get ingrained into our technology because of the way that data has been designed or because of previous um, previous ex- experiences or previous incidents or previous instances that have been built into the data. And I give numerous examples of how that affects future uh, performance and future behavior of these algorithms as well. And we might think that Um, AI is neutral and it is bias-free and that is certainly how people promote uh, AI-based hiring and recruitment apps and technology and platforms saying that this is this because it's technology it will not have any bias and we're going to get do away with all the human biases Mm -hmm. but that's completely incorrect because our, our machines are they're not black boxes they are being built and designed by humans, the data, and it's it's building on the data that exists. And so it all the biases from the team, developers, from the data are being reinforced and kind of into the into built into the system itself. But when these systems and technology can then again create these biases, we can which can perpetuate the biases that already exist in the society as well. So mm-hmm. that it becomes kind of a vicious cycle. It becomes kind of a cycle where they are taking in the biases, but they are also perpetuating, reinforcing biases as well. So um, I talk about facial recognition systems and I talk about voice assistance and how sexism and uh, um, affects these and and how racism or racial um, prejudices affect facial recognition systems. And I talk about a lot of other examples about how 
AI and tech can take these biases in and how we need, why we need to be so careful when we use technology and machine learning. And, and this isn't just sort of high tech stuff. This is stuff like voice assistants that we're using yeah. on a daily basis in our homes and in our phones. Yes, absolutely. It's it, because technology is all around us. And, um, and we don't often realize that the te- technology that we trust uh, is not just, it's not just built in isolation. It's, it's a part of society. And so we do not understand its implications. For instance, in a very simple example, how um, I talk about more in the book, but voice assistants, for example, they always have very um, female names. They were mo- mostly built by teams. I mean, the problem with tech and one of the things, obviously, in STEM is that it, most of these developer teams are largely white male mm-hmm. teams uh, or just male dominated. So um, any kind of pre- prejudices and people have talked about and I uh, talk about these studies in my book about how um, there have been uh, instances of sexism in and misogyny in Silicon Valley in these mm-hmm. kind of developer teams and coding teams. And so those kind of biases in the teams itself can get built into uh, the technology or the systems that they're creating. So um, the voice assistants um, using, giving them very feminine voices or female um, names um, creates and reinforces this kind of notion that women are uh, in a subservient role or they are going to be assistant role and the, they, they can be talked to in a, a, a dominating way and they would not retort or they would just um, not stand up for themselves because that's the kind of image that they're projecting. So that's a very simple example. And I think a lot of these companies and organizations are now beginning to take these concerns on board. So I know that there have been changes in the, the way voice assistants are being designed and things they can um, say in reply to um, sexual harassment statements or um, things like that. So there was a report by UN done a few years, a couple of years ago, which says I'd blush if I could, in which in reply to something um, very sexually demeaning, um, a voice assistant then would only say I'd blush if I could rather than actually saying anything else. And oh. so that's kind of reinforcing those, the views, the, the misogynistic views mm-hmm. that can exist in society. And we're right at the point now where we, we need to address these things at the beginning before it kind of gets too late and before the tech kind of runs away from us, really. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Um, where I wanted to ask, where did your interest in unconscious biases come from? Is that something you've always been um, looking at? or? Yeah, so I talked about how the book was a culmination of my personal mm-hmm. and professional interests. So yes, as I said, I... My research, academic research, was based a lot in kind of very dis- interdisciplinary discourse around uh, uncertainties in data and technology and biases that are built into this about the human-centered uh, interfaces, about the in- interaction between humans and technology, and so. And then my personal, as I said, is is very much mm. um, centered around the real world lived experience of. Um, sexism, racism, accent, and many other things that we all um, experience in a lifetime. And so um, because of my very interdisciplinary (laughs) research and interests, I started um, reading a lot more about um, uh, the whole notion of 
unconscious bias and then I was running workshops and talks and um, in unconscious bias um, after I left academia full-time and started my own consultancy and then from there on I mean I think just my scientific um, background and interests and my journalistic interests and my experience and my personal experience and interests they all kind of came together and merged into the book yes but I've, I've read that you trained as an architect is, is that right my first degree was in architecture at india and then i came here to do a master's and then i moved into to do my phd which was kind of um yeah slightly a big transition from mm. that first degree yes wow <laughs> um i wondered about uh, data and if because I've heard that it's the data that that can't be biased is only how we interpret that data. I wonder, do you, would you agree with that? Sent that? Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. Interpretation of data can be biased because, um, so for instance, when um, in some of my work and research, we looked at how we can make data free of uncertainties and what kind how can we model those uncertainties so that when somebody's interpreting that data or visualizing the data we can visualize the uncertainty as well so that we know that this data has got some uncertainties and biases in it but we are all humans and we as i say when we are bombarded with a lot of information it is natural some for us to take give more preference or weight to certain information than the other we cannot assess all the information in front of us and give it equal weight um, on most occasions. Mm -hmm. So when we have a data set and, or a visualization of a data, we would we are tend, we tend to um, look at things that confirm our pre-existing biases on, in certain occasions. So we all carry, as I said, conformity bias. So we would, or status quo bias. So we would try and find evidence or look at evidence that confirms our assumptions and confirms our biases rather than negates it. And that's our natural instinct. And that happens a lot. Um, and so I talk about these biases in the book and I talk about hindsight bias. So when we look back, it is our natural instinct to say, oh, I always knew that that was the case or I could see the evidence for that. And and so these kind of biases exist. And so human, human cognitive uh, facilities are inherently biased. We cannot be bias-free when we are interpreting data or when we are looking at information around us. Have you had like a moment like that, a moment of hindsight when you've realized what one of your own unconscious biases was? Yes, a lot. I, I reflect on it every day. And I think um, over the years I've changed and evolved as a person should. And with more information that's come my way, I've tried to educate myself in so many different things. So, for instance, I was born in India, and although I resisted the patriarchal structure and I I fought against it and I didn't conform to that, I obviously there's those ingrained certain mm -hmm. behaviors and ingrained um, learned behaviors about what a girl or a woman should and shouldn't do. And so, I think when I was bringing up my eldest daughter, perhaps in some of the um, things I said to her that might have come through because that is how I was brought up, even without realizing it. Um, mm. Again, the whole notion of gender binary, I think we I grew up with. And so to try and reflect on how that might not be the case always, 
I had to really educate myself in that. And I, I, I read a lot around scientific theories and scientific research studies about sex and gender to be able to understand and formulate my own views on that as well. So, yes, I think it's our responsibility every day to take on new research, scientific research, scientific evidence on board and to assess what we know and whether we what we know is right or not. And can I have any influence over anybody else's unconscious biases? I'm thinking, without naming names, I, I might have a, a racist family member. Many of us might do. Um, yeah. Is there anything I can do about that? Yes, I think absolutely. It's our resp- and it's a very tricky thing. It's really tricky, but I think it's our responsibility to stand up for what we believe in, and it's our responsibility to to talk to them because I don't think, in the current climate, especially. We can just we can just be non-racist, or we can just say, okay, I don't believe that, but I I can't really be I can't really influence what other think. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many ways of doing this. This is, there is one way of gently challenging them, questioning them, showing them evidence that their views views might not be correct. Um, putting evidence in front of them that says that what they believe in might not be the best way to go. Um, I know personally that I've had people in my life and in family who have said things that have been offensive Mm -hmm. to me, but also to others around me. And I have to, I have, it's my responsibility to make them understand that their views might not harm them immediately or their immediate family members. They, they are harmful in, in society. And I think we can keep giving very kind of clear evidence-based, um, information to them is I think our only way forward and this is why we all need to educate ourselves so that we can do that we can counter some of these views from others that was Dr Pragya Agarwal whose book Sway is out now in the June issue of BBC Science Focus magazine we take a look at the bacteria that can eat plastic chew through carbon and create food from thin air as always, there are loads more science stories inside and on sciencefocus.com. And if you like what you hear, then let us know with a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, be sure to check out our brand new bonus podcast, Everything You Wanted to Know About, where the brightest minds in their fields explain, well, everything they know about it. It's in our feed, so make sure you subscribe and listen as soon as they come out. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.